Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. All right, welcome to the Pine Lantern Podcast. My name is Paul LaFaver. I'm normally here with my ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn, but he is out doing a secret op. Uh, today is <laughs> Friday, the 9th of December, 2022, uh, and our special guest this evening is John Stryker Meyer, uh, the sergeant uh, from SOG, uh, author also of Across the Fence, On the Ground, and SOG Chronicles. Uh, a barrel-chested freedom fighter, a guy that's been there, done it, uh, one of my personal heroes, and uh, so I'm happy to have you on uh, the podcast, sir. Well, glad to be here, sir. And I, uh, I think I was wondering which, uh, how to start this off, and I thought this would be kind of interesting. Uh, Shackleton, uh, for our listeners, if you don't know, uh, he was an uh, explorer to the South Pole, and Ernest Shackleton, he had this advertisement. It read, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Now, now when I, uh, I read that today, I thought, you know, doesn't that almost describe Sog's mission uh, honor and recognition in event of success uh, with yeah, that a <laughs> climate just a little bit chillier than ours. Yeah, the, the climate a little bit different, but uh, but really, uh, you know, men wanted for hazardous duty. And I, I was thinking, uh, our listeners, uh, a lot of them come from the uh, are going through the special forces pipeline, and so uh, you know, I know a lot of guys have heard about you. They probably heard about Sog, but I thought maybe it would be a good just a kind of go down that road one more time and talk about what SOG was. Well, sure. And uh, any way you want to go about it. And, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that. Gosh, let's see now. I'm not very good at math, but basically yeah. <laughs> 55 years ago, I was there going yeah. through the Q course. Me, Ron Owens, a few other people. And uh, in my case, uh, seven months later, few days before Christmas, 1967, wow. I donned a bray with my full flash for 5th Special Forces Group. And it was a day that I'll never forget, even though there was no ceremony, no barbecue, no graduation like today. It was basically, here's your certificate. You did it. Good luck. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it seems like uh, for you, probably yesterday, I know time has gone by pretty fast for me. I'm 50. I believe you're uh, 70. I think 76. 76. 76 <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know what's awesome about SOG? I've done a little bit of reading about it. I mean, you were actually there. Uh, this was long before I was born. Uh, but a SOG was uh, uh, Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, uh, euphemistically named. It sounds so uh, studious, 
but anything oh, but that. <laughs> uh, but a, uh, a secret unit organized to carry out covert operations in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Uh, I believe it uh, began in 1964. Uh, it was, uh, I think they pulled the plug on the, uh, back in 1972, something Correct. like that. Okay. Yes, sir. So, so we're talking about eight years of just getting some. I mean, I, from what I've read, uh, you had a kill ratio of about 150 enemy to one SOG man. Uh, and then estimates are 10,000 plus killed, if we're just looking at that. And then uh, 2,400 captured. Uh, just impressive metrics. And then not only that, but just the, the tonnage of, uh, uh, you know, bombs that were dropped. Uh, and I have to sneak this in, but uh, Medal of Honor recipient, Sergeant Major Frank Miller, he wrote this, we gathered intelligence and killed human beings under extremely hazardous and adverse conditions. So <laughs> I think that's at least uh, <laughs> part of what you guys did. But, uh, and I, I think that you were in uh, Command and Control North. Is that correct? Well, it started out, uh, when I landed in 68, there were six FOBs. We didn't. We didn't call them forty operating bases. We were so cool. We just called them FOBs. Right. And so I, I reported to FOB one, which was Fubai. FOB two was Contum, which was two core, and then Fubai was an I core. If you looked at the map uh, from the DMZ down south, I core was one, two core, three core was Saigon area, and four core was the Mekong Delta to the bottom of Vietnam. Right. And so. In 68, there were six FOBs. And so we had one at Fubai, two Contoon, three was Quezon. And when Quezon was closed, they opened My Lock a short mm. distance away. And that was open until November 30th, 68. Then it was formally shut down. And then uh, all of us were combined. And we went south in January of 69 to CCN or CCC which was, again, in Contum. And then uh, in 68, FOB4 was Da Nang. FOB5 was Bami Tuat. FOB6 was Honok Tau. And mm. five and six ran missions across the fence into Cambodia. Right, yeah. So that's uh, – I'm glad you went there because um, I, th I think uh, most people, they may know or not know, uh, just the basic mission of SOG. Uh, I mean, because sometimes you had, if I, just correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you had a, a recon team, uh, but other types of teams, hatchet force teams and uh, strike teams. Uh, but for like the recon teams, the basic mission was uh, cross-border reconnaissance, which normally could evolve into uh, an airstrike or something like that. Is that right? Well, we had a series of missions and it could vary from, like you said, a general area reconnaissance to a point reconnaissance. And uh, then we had wiretaps, POW snatches, uh, bomb damage assessments. Right. And then uh, we also had inserted Air Force sensors. Wow. And so like my first two missions with uh, Spike Team Idaho in August and September of 68, we inserted uh, Air Force sensors, which was basically a large sensor in the center, it had coaxial cables on it that came out both sides. And then we had to bury 
all three units and the cable, just leaving the antennas up in the vegetation so that any anything that went up and down that road or trail would be monitored. And the computers, we were told, were sensitive enough to differentiate between men, wooded buffaloes, and tanks. Wow. So the, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's pretty hairy, you know, getting on the ground there and doing that. The, uh, well, yeah. And then the worst mission we had of all, of course, was, uh, the bright light, which was wow. yeah. a mission to go in for a team that had was in trouble or for down pilots. And 99.9% of the times when we went in for a mission like that, the mission was designed to rescue somebody in trouble or a down pilot. So you carried extra ammo because usually the enemy was waiting for us to return. And yeah. then uh, you carried extra ammo, hand grenades, bandages, and body bags. No food. And only maybe a canteen of water. Wow. And those missions were just strictly hairy. Um, but those were the range of missions we had. Yeah, and I uh, I have, uh, I mean, you're quoted as saying that, you know, basically I think you had a, a double basic load, almost triple basic load of ammo, uh, a butt ton of grenades, uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, just you guys were loaded for bear. Uh, and then, you know, you're not going, you know, uh, like you said, I mean, what I've always wondered about this. What did you guys, did you guys bring, you had to bring some type of food, right? Oh yeah, we had dehydrated rations. Okay. And some of our some of our guys, like men that were more savvy than me, they knew that in the jungle, if they ate American rations, which we did, so yeah, um, American lerps at that time, which were dehydrated, high dehydrated rations. So we had a plastic bag, and the meals varied from chicken and rice, beef and rice, chicken noodle, chili. And a couple others that I didn't like, but those are basically and beef stew, and you had to pack it. We put water in it, and then wrap the packet up and put it inside your uh, jungle fatigue next to your body, and your body heat would heat it heat it up to body Brilliant. temperature, <laughs> and everything would absorb. And then an hour or two later, we'd eat it. And uh, but some of our guys um, ate the indigenous rations, which were rice. And then they had a different variety, some uh, fish varieties, some beef. And uh, and the reason why they did it was they felt that in the jungle, because smells, anything right. different than the jungle smell could carry. And they no felt doubt. that those were more of, this, of the scent of the uh, South Vietnamese, as well as, you know, the North Vietnamese that all had a rice-based diet. Yeah, that's something that... Uh... You know, the impression I get from reading uh, you guys, the Warriors of Sog and your books, uh, is that you really, you become one with the, the jungle. You know, it's, it's the law of the jungle. You become one with the jungle. Uh, and, I mean, you, you, you know, in, uh, in tune with it. Uh, just, I can't come away from listening to some of your the podcasts and how you, you know, when the insects stop you know, and uh, birds oh, yeah. stop, and you, and you just kind of become one with, the, if that sounds weird, but is that about right? I mean, just you guys were so oh, familiar yeah. with the jungle. That's your basic, welcome to the jungle, baby. Yeah. And the shit's going to hit the fan <laughs> in about two and a half pubic hairs here. Wow. Hey, so um, I haven't heard this in uh, 
if, if uh, I'm pretty, I'm sure you've talked about it in one of your interviews, but how did you get into SOG? You were in Fifth Special Forces Group. You talked about that. You donned the beret. Uh, it's a beautiful flash you guys had then. How did that? How did you go from Fifth Group to SOG? Well, there's always a little background story, as you know. So in our case, when we were going through training group, um, particularly when we were going through our MOS training, which in my case, I was what today is an echo. And um, we had uh, all of our instructors were Vietnam vets. They had been to Nam at least once, sometimes two or three times. Like one of our instructors was Paul uh, Villarosa. Sergeant First Class Paul Villarosa, who had three tours of duty. And this was, a, he was an amazing comma guy with uh, Morse code. So all of them, once they got to know us, and once we'd been in there, as we came to the end of our MOS training, which was in my case, we got recycled. So I wasn't the brightest light on the Christmas tree. <laughs> but they, so they got to know us, you know, me, me and Johnny McIntyre, we all got recycled. And, uh, Paul, in fact, Paul Villarosa worked with us on weekends and at nights uh, on an extra overtime basis just to make sure uh, we, we could pick up the speed that we needed for Morse code. And they all said, hey, you know, when you get to Vietnam, like we got one word of advice. When you get done with your in-country training, some little guy's going to come out and say, we're looking for volunteers. Don't do it. Just stand by. <laughs> Go to a traditional A camp. Learn about the country, the people. Uh, and, uh, well, okay, so we heard all that. We get to Vietnam. Go through the in-country training, which ends in the middle of May. And sure enough, out comes the little guy. Hey, we're looking for volunteers. And Johnny McIntyre goes, hey, for what? And uh, he goes, you can't say either you're in or you're not. Hmm. And so we were in. We just seen the movie, The Green Berets, yeah. featuring John Wayne. I mean, what would the Duke do? The Duke would <laughs> say, "Let's, I'm going for it." Yeah, so we let's did. Do it. And uh, so then we got. And again, they didn't tell us what. They just said, "Okay, tomorrow there'll be a helicopter that'll take you to Da Nang. When you're in Da Nang, you're going to go to a briefing where you'll learn more about what you volunteered for." And sure enough, a couple of days later, we're in Da Nang. We're on a deuce and a half, get dropped off, go into the room, and all the windows are darkened, and there's a a, a map or something up front with a black black uh, sheet over it. And um, we sit down, we're pulling our pads and pens out, and the sergeant major comes and says, put that shit away. This is a top secret briefing. Welcome to the secret war. And they yeah. told us, you know, you got to sign these NDAs, uh, the non-disclosure agreements where we were forbidden from talking about it for 20 years. Wow. And uh, we could not talk. You know, he said, you can't talk to your mother, your girlfriend, or anybody. And they meant it. And I'll tell you how serious they were. My dad told me years later, after my first book came out, he said, there should be a, a black guy who would come by and pick up our trash. I could never figure out why. He said, but I got, when, he, when my dad got a job at the post office, he saw him down. He said, this guy was an FBI agent. They were picking up your trash to make sure that you or we didn't say anything that was inappropriate. Wow. Yeah, they're dead serious about it. So we signed him. And then at the end, it was, uh, welcome to the secret war. Uh, Meyer, McIntyre, you guys are going up to FOB1. Uh, tomorrow, report to the airfield here. And we got on the South Vietnamese Air Force. Now, again, culture shock. 
you know, we had never were told about the South Vietnamese Air Force. We knew they had South Vietnamese, we had Arvin, we had SIDS, the uh, Civilian Irregular Defense Group, and uh, and the Lok Lung Doc Biet, all different categories of South Vietnamese fighters. And, uh, but they never told us about their Air Force. Mm. And we go out, here we are, this is a, an H-34 Sikorsky. When we did our country training, was it with Ueys, uh, Jolly Green Giants, some they had some wacky looking experimental helicopters, Chinooks, and uh, even the little bird dog, you know, those C, uh, whether L6 or something like that. Mm. But the, the version of the bird that the uh, Delta Force uses today. Right, the uh, and the yeah, little bird, bird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but it was a shock. This is their air force. So anyway, we fly up, and of course, it, and the code name for the South Vietnamese Air Force uh, helicopters were King Bees, and we learned to learn just how superb they were. But we never knew. They flew us up. We get off. A recon team gets on the King Bee and disappears. Mm. Gone. The two Americans, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen are still listed as missing in action today, along with the 50 Green Berets that are still missing from the secret war today. Wow. So we had an instant opening in uh, in recon at FOB1. So welcome to the secret war. <laughs> that that was your, your welcome. Hey, you're yes, taking sir. this guy's slot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and, and the uh, team there, had, he, he was uh, highly decorated from uh, the Korean War. He was strapped. He knew his. He knew his shit, man. He was a great soldier, Glenn Lane, Glenn Oliver Lane, and uh, whatever happened, we don't know. But we just know that wow. they disappeared, never to be seen again by our folks. And then, of course, the bright light went in two days later, and they got hit with American hand grenades and American weapons. So we assume mm. the worst in that somehow the NVA got the weapons from our team. Wow. Yeah, uh, at the time you were you're arriving in Vietnam, uh, you've had. Uh, I mean, let's see. You you showed up to Sog in '68, wasn't it? Correct, May '68. Okay. That's when we landed at FOB one. And uh, I mean, it, this was after Tet, right? Yeah, four months. Tet had erupted at the end of January, early of February, and by the time we got there, there's still some little extra activities outside. And at night, we or other teams would go out with ambushes and just tell the local villagers, stay off the trails after after 11 p.m. Anything on the trail, we're going to kill it. And by that time, most of the villagers were, um, they understood, they didn't bother. They didn't like the Viet Cong, the Congress any more than we did. Yeah. And so our team, we did the local ambushes. We never had contact. Mm. So we did that, and then we had a couple practice missions, and then we did the two sensor insertions. And by the time I had gone through three months of running those missions, and saw them had a shot fired in anger. This <laughs> mm. is like hey, this is pretty cool, you know. This is this is like get a nice helicopter ride, get a good view of the countryside, get out of base camp, bullshit, and get a little time on the ground. Yeah, but that you, all changed. Yeah. I mean, uh, so initially when you went in, uh, I believe, now it's correct me if I'm wrong, you had, uh, I think, Prairie Fire was one area you went. You had, That's uh, Laos. Uh, yeah. And then you had uh, Daniel Boone area. 
Cambodia. Uh, but uh, I think maybe I may have the wrong mis- uh, conception, but the majority, I think, that of the missions you did, were, were they in like Laos and Cambodia, but you also did missions in South Vietnam too? No. Uh, the only ones we did in South Vietnam were just local security, okay. like ambush or and in the early days, we did patrols. We just go out, but that would be more. It, w- it was just to have a high visibility, and then we practice our patrolling tactics. Gotcha. And then we would, when we were outside the villages, we would uh, practice contingency drills, but with dry fire, not with live fire. And then uh, in the afternoon, go up to the range outside of Fubai, and then we would. Do the same thing, but do a live fire over and over and over again so that um, everybody on the team would have um, a level of experience dealing with it. So you had that muscle memory in place so that when the shit hit the fan, you were able to uh, focus on what you were thinking about, how you're going to react. But meanwhile, you're doing the full load responding however we are trained you know with the immediate reaction drills yeah and then now uh how long were you there before you became the one zero um uh we we fought we you know we reformed idaho right at the end of may of 68 and we did the practice missions and then we had the two insertions and we had some uh, the monsoons slowed down the operational pace um and uh for during a part of august the part of september then uh on october 5th uh st alabama we were lynn black was on alabama they had the nine-man team that came up against ten thousand nva wow. and we lost six the nva between the recon team and tactical air, they inflicted 90% casualties on it, on the enemy that day. And wow. then the next day, we got inserted. And then the following Monday, October 7th, we made contact around 2 o'clock. And they came at us. We were on a little knoll. And they just came at us for a couple hours before we got TAC air. And then we worked TAC air for a couple hours. And the last minute, right before last light, the uh, Kingby pilot, Captain Tin, came in and hovered for 10 minutes while we got through the elephant grass and were able to get on the king beam we left uh with our last magazine the last hand grenade wow <laughs> yeah and i i remember uh, uh one of the i think the best podcast uh, i've heard was you're on uh with uh, jocko and you're talking about i think the same situation uh in the elephant gl- uh, grass and then you have uh is this the time where you're like you, you you get out on the caving ladder and you you almost and you pass out was that when that happened no that's a, that was in um, that was November after after this mission <sighs> but this was strictly we were on the ground at one point we had killed so many NBA that the NBA began stacking up their dead and they were trying to uh, use the dead bodies so they can get higher up and try to shoot down at us Damn. because they hit us time and time again with these wave. But the knoll we were on prevented a huge wave attack. So we, when they hit us, it would be, you know, 10, 12 guys. We could never tell. The jungle would just light up with gunfire and we'd wow. blow them back down the hill. And then we, 
they hit us again. We blow them back down the hill. And at one point, Hep pointed out, our interpreter pointed out the bodies they were stacking up. And we could see that. And that was like, now that's wow. your basic, excuse my French, but that's your fuck me to tears moment. It's like, <laughs> I can't believe this shit. Yeah. And uh, so, yes. Yeah, so we so you're out. thinking you're not getting out alive. We were concerned. <laughs> And uh, luckily, <laughs> Covey found a, a yeah. He found the alpha grass that we hadn't seen, and directed us to it under fire. And then the king, the Captain Tin, hovered for ten minutes. Uh, and Lily saved our team. Without him, we would have been uh, Laosian fertilizer. Well, I, you know what's awesome about this uh, is, I mean, there's this is before GPS and cell phones and drop a pen. You know, you, you got to know the terrain. You, you probably, st- I would imagine you studied the maps, you studied the terrain, and then this guy flying this King Bee is, you know, his balls are riding shotgun. I mean, you, you got to be not, not on top of all of that and, and your competency. You got to find somebody uh, in the middle of the jungle and not, uh, and uh, care more about their lives than your own. That's oh, just yeah. amazing. Yeah, well, just... don't forget, too, I mean, not only the helicopter pilots, but, I mean, well, Captain Tin was just a complete stud because, you know, two months earlier, uh, when ST Louisiana uh, got overrun three times on the third time, they called a gun run in on his own team. And the gun run broke the attack, wow. but it also killed one South Vietnamese team member. And another American team, Tom Cunningham, had his leg blown off. And the medic was John T. Walton. John brought all of them home. Everybody was, everybody was wounded, but John brought them all home, saved their lives. Wow. And uh, Captain Tin, again, he had come in and picked up the two most seriously wounded. And then a second helicopter was supposed to come in. Well, the second and third one got shot out. They were younger pilots. Tin turned around and went back and picked up John Walton and the indigenous team member who was still on the ground with him and uh, pulled him out. And Tim was the one, our helicopter on that day from October 7th had 48 bullet holes in it, including one round that looked like it could have been a a 50 caliber or something maybe a little larger, but hit the propeller and left a hole in the propeller. But still that old Sikorsky CH-34 Kept flying, got us the hell out of there. Yeah, that's that's like a standard mission, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, just another day at the Just know, another day at the office. Guess, <laughs> yeah, a couple hundred in the want to kill your dumbass. And, wow. Yeah, so. Uh, and, we, and we used TAC Air. I mean, we went through fast movers, A1 Sky Raiders, Napalm, CBU, wow. uh, gun runs, 500 pound bombs. And then we had gunships, which were Scarface from the Marine Corps. From HML three six seven, and then we had the judge and the executioner, who flew with the muskets from the Americal division, the one seventy six, the Salt Helicopter Company, and yeah. those guys. I mean, their balls were so big; they had to have special seat in those helicopters <laughs> slings, just to hold yeah. their balls. <laughs> and, oh, and, they're incredible! And uh, these missions you're going out. I mean, if I'm uh, now. Once you get past the fob in you know, a certain way, I mean, you're 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 going to probably not have artillery or mortars. Uh, 
Well, no, no. That's not. That's, that's, there's, there's no mistake about that. When yeah. we went across the fence, we never had artillery. Yeah. There were no conventional units for wow. backup. No tanks. We're out there. But again, we were out there. But we had the best air force in the world. Yeah. And, uh, um, and we had a unique system with, um, the forty air controllers. We our code name was Covey. So uh, in '68 and deep into '69, they had the two engine, a push pull Cessna, like an O2 Cessna. It would be flown by an Air Force pilot. But the key thing was, we always had a Covey rider who was a SOG veteran who had been on the ground. And so when I called Covey for air support, uh, the first, like that missionaire, the first person I talked to was Spider Parks who had been my one zero and he was promoted to cubby rider. Mm. And, uh, so he knew, and this was the, one of the strong points that, uh, helped us to facilitate better use of the air because they knew what we were up against on the ground. They understood our situation from a, from a experience of time on the ground. And that was, it's that was a valuable. standard uh, progression, right? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want, uh, and that doesn't always happen. Uh, I wouldn't want somebody with experience and knows what they're doing on the ground to be up there to be bailing us out. Yeah, uh, it made it great. I mean, um, now down at CCS, sometimes they didn't they didn't have the O twos, and you dealt with the helicopter pilots. But CCS was unique, um, but they had. Uh, uh, like the crews that have been there knew the game and they really understood it. And they had a close rapport between aviation and the ground powders where like us, um, we had the 101st Airborne, Scarface. They would come into the pub and then they'd go home. And there were times when those units got shot down. We didn't know who got shot down. We just know an aircraft got shot down. Mm-hmm. Now, unless we had to go in for a bright light, then you, you would learn who they were but um that was one of those compartmentalized issues where we never knew sometimes who worked with them again we were fortunate at FOB one for a while we had the muskets and they actually lived with us and so sometimes they would get out and over us before cubby would get there we would talk directly to the to the uh, pilot Mm. and we could bring it in you know once we once they were able to see where we are on the ground through a mirror flashy through smoke or through tracer rounds they would be able to locate us you know wow and then we bring that close air support in as close as we could Mm. yeah i was uh curious about this just uh, shifting gears uh on the team if i understand things right uh you could have a six-man team with perhaps uh Two, uh, excuse me, four Indige, and then uh, you know two American. Is that right. about right? So yeah, and it varied. Like in our case, in the early days, we had three Americans and three South Vietnamese, or three Americans and five. Okay. And then once I was the one zero, and ran a few missions. I got, you know, our South Vietnamese soldiers were so brave and fearless and good in the jungle that. Um, I just had another American so that if I got shot, he could drag my dumb ass out. Or if he got yeah. shot, I could drag his ass out. That makes because sense. Because little people couldn't do that. 
But yeah. our little people were phenomenal. I mean, they ran point. Um, and when the team got wiped out in 68, you know, our uh, New Year Man Sal was our Vietnamese team leader. So he and Hep, the interpreter, recruited people. They brought in new guys. They did the vetting. Mm. And then we would talk to them about each member. And then Spider Parks brought me in and Don Wolken. Don became the assistant team leader. And I was the greenest kid in camp, so I was the radio operator. And I liked that because this way I could call it on attack air. Yeah, so you had, uh, I guess, uh, the one zero was the team leader, the the one one was uh, the assistant, and then the one three was the radio operator. Is that one right? One two was the uh, radio Okay, the operator. one two, sorry. That, that makes right. sense. And sometimes it, they had teams that had four Americans, and then, then the one three would be the fourth American. Gotcha. But, oh, I never did that. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Now, so the, uh, I mean, that obviously gave uh, a dynamic component to your team. And so you could, uh, you have the, the language capability of that. I mean, when you're talking interpreter, you're talking somebody that, uh, you know, if you're in Laos, some of it yeah. would know Laotian and, and then you've got uh, all the other uh, firepower, got your radios, something that's interesting. Uh, and I was thinking about this, uh, getting ready for our, our podcast today. And I was looking at the legacy of uh, SOG, and uh, I happened to, I was privileged to be in uh, the unit. I was in C Squadron, and you may know this, but uh, the interesting thing is there's six, you know, the, the way the teams are organized and the way these call signs are used are very similar. And so you have uh, a similar uh, structure uh, that's carried on. Uh, and not only that, but um, you definitely had a lot of rope. Uh, so you're looking at NCOs, the whole, I mean, the whole team full of NCOs and down, no officers. And then you're just going out there with all this firepower, all the, the radios, everything you have. And, uh, and you're out there doing the thing. And, you know, that's, that is, there's not a lot of that going on anymore. Uh, well, that, yeah, yeah, but you know, again, in that unit that you were in, if you're in C squadron, I was in D squadron a couple months ago visiting them and just seeing the training facilities and the, yeah. and the amount of training that the, those men do is just incredible. And that's basically in the fine tradition because yeah. we, we did the live fire stuff, but again, nothing like what <laughs> you guys did from the C squadron or no. any other squadron over here. And that's really, <laughs> no, no. The, here's my point, uh, John, yeah. is uh, the TTPs you guys developed 50 years ago, we're still using so we, really? we still, yeah, we still do. Those are the same TTPs, the stuff that you guys uh, had to learn uh, in, in blood and treasure, uh, we have. So we use those, the same, the peels, the, the uh, just the, your battle drills, all the stuff that, that you guys did, uh, how you organized uh, your, your element, uh, how you went in did heavy? Did you guys do repelling too? Repel into a target? I know you fast rope in. That's only we have to, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, because it's it's not going to look that great. But uh, but yeah, you know, personally, yeah, well, I did it in training uh, in the in the operator training course. But you know, on the for real, no. Usually it was offset infill, uh, and then we you know we uh, may. Uh, we'd fly in a, a, a helicopter or a we'd drive up in a vehicle, but very rarely would we actually do. If it was a rope, it'd be like a, a short little rope. 
It was nothing right. like nothing like you guys did, where it's like, hey, I have to penetrate a tri- you know a triple canopy jungle to get on the ground, and there's not a lot of HLZs. So, I, I, if I understand things right, you had to do that just to get in and to get out. And yeah, we did that a few times, like particularly on bright lights, and then some, I mean, there was one point in '68 where. We had so many teams getting shot out of the open LZs that we decided to uh, use a daisy cutter, a 2,000-pound daisy cutter, just to find oh. a swath of jungle that from the air would appear as though there's no trails or anything. Drop the bomb and then repel right in and then take off just, to, just to, for an opportunity to get a team on the ground. Wow. And, um, I mean, you oh. guys would almost – you guys uh, also carried uh, – I mean, you carried mines with you, some claymores, maybe some C4. Oh, we always did that. Okay, oh, just yeah, just in to. a pinch if you needed. You know, I mean, I would imagine things could go sideways quickly, and then you, you'd want to have that on you for, for whatever reason. Right, and we use the claymores. It could be, well, primary would be for RON security at night. Right. So everybody, the, those who carried them would put them out. They were in charge of them. And then when it was their turn to sleep, they would turn the clacker over to the other teammate. So there would always be somebody awake in the event that there was a necessity for it. Wow. And then, of course, we used the claymores. We had uh, ambushes where we would have claymores on the left and the right. In the middle would be a block of C4 that would knock out one person. Mm. And then everybody else would be killed by the claymores. And yeah, then I, that way we capture a POW alive and bring them home. Okay, and yeah. And last a, but not least, yeah, we different. use the claymores for blowing down small trees, or um, again, so, so there were a few times when we were uh, doing the E and E, and we put down the claymores with five second fuses on them, or fuses that would be a little bit longer, or with a trip wire, so that they were trailing us or tracking us. Uh, they would hit those claim wars. That always slowed them down. Just a wow. gruesome weapon. Yeah, I didn't. I did not know that. Uh, that's definitely sketchy. <laughs> oh yeah. You, I mean, you got to put that. I can imagine just uh, you know, firing the hole, man. You better be moving out. Uh, yeah. You don't want to be around when that thing freaking goes off. <laughs> yeah, and then make sure it's in front of the tree. So yeah, f- make sure you face it the it right way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wow, what what a time to make sure you got the concave convex side correct, because I've oh, yeah. I've seen I've worked out at the uh, I was privileged to work at the small unit tactics committee of the Q course, and you'd be surprised how many guys turn those claymores the wrong way when they're tired. And I, I well, uh, so, but again, here's here's your key point. Like you've talked earlier about the training, like the training yeah. you went through when you're with the C squadron, and then like we did the same thing, so that. When it came time to pull out that C4 yeah. or your claymore or a mine, a road mine, and we trained up on that. Or a wiretap. We yeah. trained up on it. So you're not standing there looking at reading the instruction box, you know? Yeah, not the time you know, to do that. <laughs> and our, yeah, exactly. And our little people were so good. Our South Vietnamese were just phenomenal. And uh, they were quick with it. They were good with it. And those claymores, man, just one nasty weapon. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, Thanksgiving Day. I mean, every Thanksgiving rolls around. Uh, we we went through a couple of those when they were chasing. We, our mission had been 
to find three missing NBA divisions. We found, we estimated we found two, and the point in the tail of those respective units chased us back to the LZ. Wow. And the only thing that saved us was the 20th Special Operations Squadron from the Air Force, the Green Hornets, and the five-second fuses and the Claymores, because that, when they came at us, you know, we were doing our, our contingency drill backwards to the LZ, but those Claymores is what slowed them down enough to get us to the LZ. Those are days of high adventure. <laughs> oh, indeed. Oh, wow. yeah. Hey, so uh, now on all this crazy stuff that you guys did, I mean, these these missions are insane, by the way. I mean, uh, I didn't do any type of missions like this. I mean, we we had, you know, a lot of guys. We had rangers on blocking positions. We've got all kinds of uh, gadgets and, uh, you know, all kinds of support. You guys were a six-man team just out there flapping. You got what you came in on. I mean, if you guys, you know – didn't have the competence and the balls to go out there. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of cavalry coming in to get you, except like you said, that, that Kobe rider. And then, uh, you know, what you could bring to bear. And then you got to have some competence there too. But so my, so here's my question and all that stuff you had to do. Uh, what was your mindset? Like, I mean, what, where did you get your mind before one of these missions? I mean, what, what was your like, you know, meditative or whatever you did to get ready for this. Well, I think, I think again, you and I probably have a couple of similar trails we go down. It was just like we knew, like you guys, we're the tip of the spear here today and now. And so, what's our mission? Train up for it and just think about any eventual problem or Murphy's Law. Or things that could kick in that could really fuck up your day. Yeah. And you try to anticipate any of that so you could plan for it as best you can, but also uh, to really uh, always tell the team, you know, this is we're training, we're doing this and this and this, but be ready for the unexpected. I mean, we always carried gas masks, we always carried gas because the NVA had used it on other teams. And in the worst situation, the shit's really in the fan, then you pop that CS gas. And we had a code. Once that word went out, everybody would put their gas masks on mm. so that if worse came to worse, we would be able to pop that gas and we'd have our masks and be able to go through it, whereas all the enemy would be choking and puking on it. Yes. So, so that, and again, it just goes back to the training. Yeah. Train time and time again. And we always made sure that the gas masks, the filters were in place. And I don't know how rigorous your squadron units were in terms of knowing where your, each other man's equipment was, try to have similarities in placement of equipment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just the key things like that where we just work it. I mean, everything from something as basic as how do you put your magazines into your uh, magazine holder, yeah. into the poncho liner, I mean, a poncho or, or the canteen holder, I mean. Yeah. And we had BAR belts we, we could use and you could get like four or five magazines and those things. But it just had to really have that muscle training down so that your mind would be focused on what you're doing 
but not reading the instructions how to use a claymore. <laughs> but you're still adjusting to what the yeah. hell's going on. Yeah, and that. Um, so just having you describe that, um, you know, it's. I mean, you're obviously very practical. I mean, uh, I mean, guys like us, we run to the sound of the guns. Uh, we do, you know, dangerous stuff. Uh, get, you know, we kill human beings under extremely hazardous and adverse conditions. So we're, oh, yeah. you know, not, uh, you know, analytical guys. But it also, <laughs> say, you know, I mean, I'm talking about myself too. I'm a, I'm a knuckle dragger uh, from way yeah. back. But, uh, but to do the stuff that we did, uh, I think there's something. Maybe this will resonate with you. Uh, and it sounded almost like this that you know you have the very good possibility of of dying, and you know that. I mean, because you saw, I mean, I think it was like a casualty rate of 100%. If I if I think that's the slogan. So, like, yeah, we, somebody got, and I don't know how you never got shot. Oh, well, I did. <laughs> oh, you I, did? No, okay. I never got shot, but I got hit with shrapnel. Okay. Where there was one that was serious enough that we put in for the Purple Heart and got it. Okay. I mean, a couple other times. My apologies. We, no, 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 it's okay. No, nothing yeah. to apologize for. Um, I mean, but, compared to compared yeah. the people that you and I know, particularly in your world, well, we had guys that lost legs. But, I mean, you see a guy lose a leg or an arm, and he gets a purple heart, and then we get shrapnel where the shrapnel's in your face, in your arm, you're bleeding, the medics pull it out. If you can't get it out, you put a Band-Aid on, and you go back to work. And it just yeah. seemed like the, the purple heart was like, I almost felt guilty for taking it compared to those guys that got hammered. Yeah, me and you both. Me and you both. Oh yeah. my God! Yeah. But uh, the thing I was thinking about too is uh, just a weird out, just for a second. But um, in uh, you know Bushido, you have this concept that you go in the battle, go into the battle as you're already dead. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, you, it's like a, a bonus coming back alive. Uh, and, and it's not to say that you're suicidal or you hold someone else's life, uh, you know, in low regard. But it's like the very real possibility is you're not going to be coming back alive. And I, I just happen to think, you know, you guys, you guys were uh, subconsciously doing that. Just like, hey, this, this could be it. And I know from hearing your other uh, your writings and your podcasts, like you thought, OK, this this time it's probably really going to be it. <laughs> uh, I imagine you had some times like that. But I was, yeah, yeah. you know, but, you know, I. That that level of thinking, that, that's like, I can't be accused of thinking that well. I mean, I uh, basically, myself, and I, I know Don and Lynn is kind of like, well, the mission's today. This is what we got to do. Yeah. Some things you don't think about, which is like, well, I can get my ass killed today. Yeah. Yeah, we, we all live with that. And then going out in a firefight where you win with that incredible adrenaline high off of that. Which, as you know, from a firefight, and you're in the middle of it, there's yeah, that adrenaline is coursing through your body, and then you live to talk about it. That's just amazing. Um, but I don't know. I just, I never thought about that other option. We planned on it. We always did some practicing with the medics for chest sucking wounds. Right. Uh, if you get your limb blown off how where do you put the tourniquet if there's minimal leg to put it to things like that it's got awful stuff to talk about even in practice yeah 
Absolutely. And in my time on the ground, I was very fortunate to never, our team, we never had critical injuries like that. We had buku shrapnel, uh, antennas shot off. People had rounds that went through their rucksack. Uh, one of our guys had the, uh, we were getting extracted on strings. The uh, round had skimmed off his boot. Another round went through his fatigue jacket, but it never hit him. Wow. And, you know, God, you just don't know. Yeah. Whether the recon guys are going to smile on you or not. <laughs> but divine intervention had to be a lot, it play a lot of times in my dumbass case, I'll tell you that. <laughs> hey, uh, so I know you, I've, uh, I remember from another podcast that you had uh, two tours there in Sauk. Yeah. So you had a little yes, bit sir. of a break. Uh, and so when you came back in, uh, I believe it was 70. No, I came back in October, at the end of October 69. Okay. Uh, yeah. And and uh, I think in uh, SOG uh, Chronicles, you talk about uh, Tailwind. And oh, I was, yeah. I was curious if you can just kind of just tease out uh, some of the details there. Maybe. Oh, some, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we had the eight-year history. Um, and Tailwind went from uh, September 11th to the 14th, 1970. And this was B Company. Uh, at CCC, Contum, and uh, basically the CIA was further west of our AO, much further west. And they were getting, they were involved in a brutal battle with the NBA. And they were getting their ass kicked, and they asked for relief. And basically they wanted a SOG hatchet force to go into a target east of their position, go into a target area, to raise hell, to distract the NBA, to force the NBA to react to them. Well, um, Captain G. McCarley was the uh, CO for B Company of the Hatchet Force. He had 16, he and 15 other Green Berets with 120 in Dig, um, and they launched outside of our AO in an effort further west beyond our regular AO, and they had Marine Corps CH-53 Deltas that took the 136 men to the target, dropped them off, and as they were going into the LZ, three men got wounded and had to remain on a helicopter and return back to base. And Gene McCauley went in with the premise of hitting the ground, but always moving day and night so the NVA could never pinpoint where they were. And they were, it was just an amazing mission. Gene was on the ground maybe two hours, and they stumbled into a base camp that was relatively vacated. So the hatchet force people got rid of all of the stay-behind security forces, and they picked up maps. And then while they were in the headquarters area, the telephone rang. And uh, Gene McCarley picked up the phone and said, hello, 5th Special Forces, may I help you? Yeah. Now, to this day, that... New Union confusion sitting on the end of the phone and annoying. He's going, how the hell did that happen? But but they um, but they proceeded to destroy tons of enemy food, weapons, and ammunition. And then they moved. And that first night, when they were in their RON, an RPG came in. It went past, and they were having a team leadership conference. And the RPG missed all the troops hit a tree, 
and then the shrapnel exploded backwards. Golly. It wounded the only medical on the team, Mike Rose, and several other members of that leadership team, and two of the South Vietnamese, uh, or the Montagnards, I'm sorry, they, they had a Montagnard team. They were severely wounded. And wow. uh, Mike had to uh, patch up a serious wound in his foot. He had shrapnel gone through his jungle boot, and he bandaged up his foot. He had a wound to his hand. You know, to this day, he cannot close his hand the right way because of the wounds he suffered. But they went in. He passed them up. They moved during the night. They had Spectre gunships over them. And when they made enemy contact, they hit him, hit him hard. And they moved for three days. On the fourth day, they uh, were going to medevac the wounded. And uh, weather had changed. And then the Cubby Rider had spotted hundreds, if not over a thousand NVA heading on a collision course to that to that force. And he told them, well, between the weather and these, by then they had the NVA coming at them. And they said, this is the end of the mission. So the first helicopter came in, the CH, again, the Marine Corps CH-53 Delta, one of which was shot down the previous day, attempting a medevac. Mm. So the first one came in, they loaded up one third of the force. Second one came in, there was more gunfire on it, enemy gunfire. They loaded up the second third of the team. It left, the third one came in and got hammered, but they were able to extract, and the enemy was so close, they used CS grenade, uh, gas grenades to, uh, to confuse the enemy, and it worked. They were able to get everybody on the helicopter as the helicopter was lifting off from the LZ, one of the Marine Corps door gunners was shot in the neck. Mike Rose ran over, saved this young guy's life. And at one point, he was beginning to, uh, he was panicking. And Mike told him, look, with this wound, if you were going to die, you would have been dead 10 seconds yeah. ago. But you're still alive. <laughs> Lie down and shut the fuck up. And he passed him up. And he saved this kid's life. Wow. And so while this is happening, the helicopter goes up and loses an engine flying over a mountain. Now it's loaded with personnel, maps, intel, everything they garnered. They go over the second mountain and the second engine went out and they had to auto rotate in with a CH 53 Delta. Now, at that point in time, the Marines were not training any of their pilots to do an auto rotation with a CH-53 Delta, but they did it. This pilot was just incredible. He was able to pull it off. They landed hard, and they landed so hard that Gene McCarley, Captain McCarley, crushed his teeth God. when he was he and others were thrown out of the helicopter, literally. But they were alive to talk about it. And then the, another helicopter came in and picked them all up. And the medic, Mike Rose, received the Medal of Honor from President Trump on October 23rd, 2017. That's right. For his efforts. And he passed up over 50% of that team during those, those four days on the ground. Just an amazing story. Yeah, that is, that's fantastic. And uh, I think uh, just by the secretive uh, nature of SOG, uh, I, I believe he you know, just recently received that uh, Medal of Honor. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, like I said, 2017, five years ago. Wow, 
Yeah. So that's basically what, 70, 25, 17, 42 years after the mission he got it. Wow. President Trump uh, wrapped it around his neck and we were all there to celebrate. And you can read about that in Saw Chronicles Volume 2 or now Saw Chronicles is out as an audiobook for people that don't like to read or for some folks in our audience who can't read, they can right. listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, so uh, John, what are you working on right now? You have uh, you have three books out: uh, Across right. the Fence, On the Ground, and Saw Chronicles. Uh, and you know, listeners need to go out and check that out. Uh, what else? Uh, what's on your uh, to do well, list right know, now? Uh, back in June of 2019, I appeared on a sawcast with a Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink, uh-huh. and I've done the first one was. Uh, Jocko podcast number 180 since then I've done 8 with Jocko and at the end of the last two Jocko and I were talking about future people to, uh, to for him to interview for his podcast and he said you know let's do a thing called SOGcast yeah. so basically it would be strictly SOG interviews and I'm going yeah sure Jocko let's do this when do you want me to send these guys in to you he goes uh, how about we send them to you yeah. and you interview. <laughs> Fantastic. And so today, um, we started that now. It's been 18 months ago. We've got 32 interviews in the can. Uh, and Jocko's staff post these first as audio audio podcasts on Spotify and on Apple uh, Podcasts. And they have seven that have been posted as YouTubes. And the first one that we posted on the YouTube now has had 189,000 views as of today. Wow. And so it's me interviewing um, SOG members. We have one historian in there and uh, a couple of helicopter door gunners to talk about the secret war from their perspective. And one was Roger Lockshear. He did a book called We Save SOG Souls. And the reason why I'm telling you about this, he has this one chapter where he's the helicopter's doing a door gun. He's a door gunner and the other door gunner. They're both firing on the enemy in support of a recon team that's in close contact. And during this gun run, the cubby rider calls up the helicopter, hey, be advised, did you know your engine is on fire? And Roger locks you and looked out, and he writes about this so eloquently. He says, he looked out, yep, the helicopter's on fire. Now, he could have taken creative actions or preventive actions or fought the fire, but what he did, and his door, fellow door gunner, Scott, they continued firing at the enemy in that gun run. Wow. And he stayed on the machine until that helicopter crashed and knocked his ass out. Wow. So, uh, these are people that we have on the sawcast, yeah. And um, Jocko Willing has done a great deal to help get sawk history wider circulation in, in a different population, listening audience in America and around the world. Well, and yeah. I'm working on a future podcasts. He pays for all the costs that are attached to those things. He's been very generous and kind that way. And um, I'm hoping to start book four. Uh, which will be on stories not yet told or a couple that have been told, but to do more detail on them. And uh, meanwhile, I'm a proud granddad. we got three grandchildren. Awesome. My wife and I moved to Tennessee two years ago. We love it here. Mm. 
She's putting together an art studio where we're going to be working with the wives of people from the 5th Special Forces Group, wives and children here. And we just love the uh, love being in Tennessee, like moving back to America. Mm, fantastic. Yes, sir. Well, sir, uh, I think we've got about an hour into this. Really? Uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, you know, maybe you could just uh, give a shout out to, let's just say, you were at you were asked to speak to a graduating class of the Special Forces Qualification Course, and you just had you know a few minutes to kind of give them some gems. What would you say to them? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I'd be honored to meet today's newest Green Berets when they come out of that Q course. That's the first thing I would say, because the Special Forces community is very tight. When we went through training group 55 years ago, we, when we left, we stood on the shoulders of the Special Forces Originals. Now, the SF Originals are the men who were the first Green Berets in 1953 that marched into Bad Tolls with the 10th Special Forces Group. Mm. And uh, that was a, a moment in the Special Forces history. We stood on their shoulders. And since then, the subsequent generations, including you and your fellow four squadrons there, at the unit and today's men i said when you graduate you're now standing on our shoulders and the shoulders of the special forces men who stood on our shoulders go forward do the mission listen mm -hmm. learn think outside the box and uh, god bless america awesome that's fine fine words sir uh they they say that many go through life wondering if they will ever make an impact and uh, I know a veteran like yourself never has that problem. Never. So I appreciate your uh, selfless sacrifice, your service to our country, your loyal and patriotic service, uh, all the experiences you have uh, to give us. And uh, so that's what I see your, your SOGCAST is all about, is to, to pass the torch uh, to Absolutely. the next generation. So uh, next generation, you need to, to go to these uh, these sawcast you need to also read the books uh and yeah, so christmas is coming christmas is coming around Amazon and mail the family friends relatives or <laughs> absolutely <laughs> shameless propaganda here <laughs> but uh sir we're glad to have you on the podcast today thank you so much for being here well it's my honor i gotta tell you today i was at fifth special forces group we were up there they had a, the uh, thanksgiving the annual thanksgiving luncheon for all the troops. Nice. And just being with today's Green Berets, this is all part of that. It's, it's a unique family. Yes. It's not a family where you can buy it and get in. No, you have to earn that funny yes. hat that keeps neither <laughs> the rain nor the sun out of your eyes. But you earn it. And once you're in, there's a lot of going on. There's there's uh, efforts to always support the families and uh, support the troops that they go forward into, like you said, ugly places. That's right. That's right. Well, Doing God's uh, work. That's it. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. If you enjoy our content, we hope you'll check out our sponsors. Blacksmith Publishing has been serving the warrior class since 2013. Uh, we have great titles written by Warriors for Warriors. If you're looking for a great reference book or you just want to unwind in the G base with a novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at blacksmithpublishing.com. Uh, you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, head on over to the general store located at pinelander1776.com. 
Uh, we've got a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, patches, and a whole lot more. Uh, that's at pinelander1776.com. Uh, also, uh, Christmas is coming up, and so uh, go to uh, SOGCAST. You can uh, check out John Stryker Meyer's website uh, and uh, you know get a lot of the great apparel there, the books that he has, all the podcasts, everything that he has, all that, is he ha- that he has available. Uh, until our next meeting, keep your head on a swivel and stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God bless America.